0: the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Beth Long, a software engineer on the Build and Deploy Tools Engineering team at New Relic, based in the ever-delightful Portland, Oregon. Beth Long, welcome to Maintainable.
1: Thank you. It is wonderful to be here.
0: So let's dive right into it. Given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common traits that a software code base is being well-maintained?
1: One of the things I'm obsessed with lately is how we think about code and the entire socio-technical system, not just the technical stuff that we're usually focused on. So I tend to think about the way that the code is organized and written as it has to do with how humans think about it. So code that prioritizes intelligibility that is oriented to the ways that humans interact with it rather than an academic ideal. That, in my experience, tends to be the code that is most maintainable because it's oriented towards the people that are maintaining it. So simple, clear emphasizing readability over conciseness. Those are all things that contribute to a code base that's maintainable. And then, of course, there's also thinking about how the code actually gets implemented in the real world. So starting to think about the infrastructure that it deploys to and the deploy mechanisms and whether those things also lend themselves to intelligibility and clarity.
0: When you say intelligibility, what do you mean by that?
1: When I'm talking about intelligibility, I'm talking about code that tends to make sense to people that aren't intimately familiar with it. And that might be someone who hasn't worked extensively in the code base, or it might be someone who worked in it two months ago and has been doing something else and is coming back to it. So one specific example of that is a code base I've been working on recently that has a very flat file structure. Like Basically, it's at most usually two or three nested levels. And you can go in and look at all of the files and drill down into one or two levels and see where everything is and how it all fits together. And... I've found that to be a very easy code base to work in because I can quickly make sense of it as a person and start to navigate through it. None of the pieces are too big and none of them are too far flung. So it's much easier for me to dive in and be productive in that than something that has all this magic and layers and this points to that other thing. And you would have to have this whole huge mental model of it in order to even make a start.
0: Hmm. Okay. Do you, you and your team use the term technical debt at all?
1: We do. Here, I work at New Relic, as you mentioned, and we have the privilege of working with Ward Cunningham, who originated the term technical debt. So we've had a lot of conversations with him about the origins of the term. And so even knowing Ward and kind of having his original viewpoint on it, a lot of people use technical debt in a colloquial way that refers more to the accumulation of iffy decisions and trade-offs and shortcuts that lead to software that is hard to maintain and hard to extend. But what's interesting is Ward's original conception of the term when he coined it, he was working on a financial system. And he actually meant it more in the traditional sense of debt, as something that you deliberately take on in order to be able to do something you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So you take on debt so that you can buy a house, and then you pay it off over time, rather than saving up $400,000 $400,000 and buying it outright. And so similarly, he talks about technical debt as being a very conscious decision to sacrifice some of that maintainability for short-term gains with the notion that you're going to deliberately pay it back over time. And of course, um, even when you make those decisions deliberately, you don't always pay it back over time. But No, no. <laughs>
0: But I don't know that you end up having the same sort of people coming back with like there's a collections or something for you or charging your interest rate. It's an interesting one with technical debt. A lot of folks talk about it in different ways. And I've always been curious about it as a because I feel like it tends to be iffy code, bad code. Someone else's code, I think, is often one way people use it. So. I don't necessarily always see it's like a, is it a bad thing or not? It's just uh, something that there's known concerns about the code base or something. How does your team prioritize that type of work? If you've identified some technical debt, do you keep it in a similar backlog or is it just something you clean up along the way or?
1: So we had a really interesting process for a while that we worked out with our organizational architect to assess our backlog prioritize it. And then basically what we did was come up with a payment plan. Like we said, all right, here's how much time we're going to invest, say every two months, and we're going to pay off the highest interest items first. And we're just going to work at this backlog until we get it down to a size that seems sustainable and then once we hit that point, then we'll move into more of a maintenance phase where we can still have these dedicated times to work on that backlog, but it can be a little bit less of an investment, a little bit less frequently. That was a, a really effective method that worked for us for quite a while. And then as happens in the business world, there were some demands for more feature velocity. And so we, we disrupted that process and have recently been coming back to thinking about okay what's a way that we can recapture the best of that plan while still navigating the business's need to see visible progress and so we're we're tossing around some ideas now of how to set up some parallel workflows for the team that'll let us go back to paying off that interest on a regular basis and still be able to move forward visibly
0: Have you seen different ways, work successfully, maybe not so successfully, and how developers bring up with stakeholders, whether it's in the same organization or your clients, to talk about these types of topics and make sure that they understand it so that to give that kind of space for your team to do that?
1: I love this topic because it's something that every team that I know is constantly, if not struggling with, at least putting a lot of energy into balancing And especially uh, the, the team I'm on is in our site engineering group, which is very operationally focused. And so the price of not doing that sustaining work is felt much more acutely by teams that have a strong operational bias. One of the things that I see happen a lot is stakeholders, they have their own struggles and their own pressures. And so they're very often focused on velocity. So they will say things like, well, if there's one person, for example, that's on a, on a hero rotation, if they're on call, they're answering questions from other teams. Maybe they can deal with these sustaining issues, like in their spare time, in air quotes. And that I've never seen work because you're taking someone who's doing very interrupt driven work and asking them to invest in these issues that are old and gnarly and then where they have to kind of sink into something that maybe they haven't dealt with for a while. So the things that I've tended to see work have focused on finding a way to give the team some kind of focused, protected time. And it might be parallel workflows. It might be a certain cadence of doing this This work, it might be saying, let's try to pick smaller chunks of work and kind of slot them in between bigger chunks of new feature work. But it always goes back to finding ways to support the ways that teams actually need to work on those things. And if it's not protected and intentional, it doesn't tend to pan out.
0: Hmm, it's interesting. Given the products that New Relic makes, I'm imagining all your customers are dealing with similar types of hurdles themselves. And so I, I've heard a few people that I've spoken with kind of start talking about how they're trying to work with their team on reframing things to talking about like dealing with the annoyances or the technical hurdles that are challenging the developers, talking about how they're going to be optimizing and like flipping the conversation around to being primary, like we're making the deployments faster, We're like these things will help, we're making the site faster, you know, all these other ways to talk. It, like there's probably some flip side to this to some of these challenges that developers... It's easy for developers to start listing off all the annoyances in an application. But I think there's a conversation there sometimes that I think developers helping them better tell their own story, I think in some ways, a uh, something I've been curious about, but I don't have a lot of concrete ideas about at this point.
1: You are hitting the nail right on the head because on the the flip side that you're talking about is the developers are all kind of down in the weeds they know the struggles that they're having and they they kind of instinctively know how important these things are because they're the first ones to feel the pain when things blow up. But you're right that they often lack the skill to, and it's a very specific skill to be able to step out of their experience of the world enough to understand the pain and pressure and challenges that their stakeholders are facing, and be able to make a compelling case, being able to convey clearly the value of the work that they're doing to make the risks visible, the risks that they want to mitigate, making those risks visible, is difficult to do. But when you're able to do it, Then you can start to get traction and start to get support for doing the things that you need to do. And we've seen our customers do this as well. Like they'll go to their executives and say, Hey, we need to instrument our stuff because we're flying blind and we don't have enough observability into our systems. And executives will be like, you want to stop delivering new features for like a month? And we've had customers that put together an entire slide deck and said, look, here's what we're going to get out of it. Yes, it's going to hurt in the short term, but here's the value that you get from us doing this work. And when they tell the story, then executives are like, oh, of course, yeah, go do it.
0: So I want to switch over a little bit and talk about maybe the type of work that you're doing at New Relic. Given the software that you offer to your customers, I'm kind of curious if you can share much about the type of projects that you are working on and focusing on there and how that's helping improve the maintainability maybe of the infrastructure?
1: Sure. So the build and deploy tools team that I'm a member of builds and maintains our build and deploy pipeline. And we're going through a really interesting phase right now because... One of the downsides of being an early adopter in technology is that sometimes you're able to bet a little bit too early on a new technology. And so a couple of years ago, we invested heavily in an orchestration platform that's built on Mesos Marathon, which at the time was a really smart decision. And then not long after we went all in on Marathon as our orchestration platform, it became clear that Kubernetes, which was initially a much less mature technology, was going to become the industry standard. So now we're in the process of migrating over to Kubernetes, which has been challenging and really interesting and exciting. And so the tools team is Working on the deploy tooling so that teams can begin to, to deploy into that new world. And so part of what we've been doing has been working with Spinnaker, which is an open source continuous deploy tool that came out of Netflix. And we're adapting that for use for our new Kubernetes platform. So that has been a really interesting process of not just dealing with our own internal set of tools, but also now looking at an external tool that is itself a set of microservices that are largely written in languages that we don't have a lot of expertise in as a team, a lot of Java-based tools. And so that entire process has been very interesting and a bit of a challenge to figure out how to make the right set of trade offs, thinking both about how we can get that short term velocity to kind of get an entire organization switched over to a new way of deploying their stuff, and then also investing effectively in the long term story so that we have the right opportunities in place in, around things like doing good canary deploys and analysis and being able to address some of the more complex challenges of teams that are deploying stateful services, that are making heavy use of Kafka and giving them a better way of deploying than they've had to date.
0: Interesting. And out of curiosity with like things like Kubernetes, which admittedly, personally, I've not spent that much time digging into or trying to wrap my head around it. But a couple of my employees have been really curious about it. At what size of an organization would you recommend that using tools like that is maybe a good point to help have a good payoff, I suppose, for your development teams workflow? Is that, and I've seen projects come our way where they've heavily invested in some things related to Docker or maybe they're using Kubernetes, but they're like a team of like two or three developers. And then I'm just like, is this something you're, you're really curious about? Or do you build a bunch of infrastructure that you may or may not be needing just yet?
1: That's a great question. The first thing that comes to mind is that. Tools like Docker and Kubernetes arose in response to the blossoming complexity of managing systems at scale. Kubernetes is very simple conceptually, and it strives for simplicity as one of its core values. But simplicity is very hard to achieve. So if you are dealing with with a software system of sufficient complexity in terms of the ecosystem itself. If you have a lot of microservices, if you're dealing with a lot of scaling issues, then it's probably worth it to pay the price tag to move into these kinds of orchestration platforms. I'm thinking about microservices themselves. One of the conversations that I have with our customers a lot is microservices and by extension, Kubernetes on the infrastructure side, aren't inherently better than monoliths. They're just better at solving a certain set of problems. And so monoliths are great for getting things up to speed quickly and trying things out and having a system that back to our earlier conversation is more intelligible because it's one big chunk that you can kind of wrap your head around. And so if you find that a more straightforward approach isn't serving you and you're dealing with that burgeoning complexity, then it's time to start making that trade-off and pay the cost of investing in moving a lot of that complexity from your software or your infrastructure sort of over onto the developers and operations folks that are going to be supporting it. But if you're small and simple enough that that price tag doesn't make sense, then you know stick with the monolith, stick with with a simpler deploy story.
0: We'll be back with my interview with Beth in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers on LinkedIn, TikTok, or Twitter, or wherever you kids are hanging out these days. Also, if you know of someone that you think should be on the show as a guest, please get in touch with me by emailing me at robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now back to our interview with Beth Long. I've heard you talk a little bit about something called Second System Syndrome. Can you share a little bit about that
1: for our audience? Sure. This is one of my favorites. So second system syndrome comes from the book back in the 70s, The Mythical Man Month, uh, kind of an outdated title. But it refers to this tendency to see a small, elegant system that really works well, and want to replace it with something newer and bigger and better that is also Over engineered and bloated. And this is a really common trap. It's actually relevant to what you just asked about because a lot of people are going to say, Oh, Kubernetes is the new hotness or whatever the thing is, is the new hotness. We need to use that without thinking about whether it actually fits what they need. And so it's a common trap when you have a system that you're maybe a little jaded to, it works well enough, but everyone is like, well, we wish it did this thing. And if only it did that other thing, and can't we just add these features? And so there's a real temptation to say, all right, let's throw out the old and bring in this new thing that's going to be so much better. And really what happens is, You know the old thing well, you know all of its flaws, and all of the flaws and complexities and challenges of the new thing are still hidden. And so you're able to pretend that they're not there until you're so far in that it's hard to double back.
0: You know, it's interesting. I think it kind of relates back to also like rewrites as a thing or new technology, but there's always these new shiny objects in our industry. I think one of the things that a number of different guests have kind of touched on, and something I've kind of keep referring back to, is a little bit of resume-driven development. You know, you're worried that you've been maintaining something existing code base for a long time, and it works, and you're adding new features, and you still keep working on it, but all your friends are working maybe at a different company, and they're getting to use some new technology, and you're like, oh, will I be hireable if I keep going down this path? And so. I think it's an interesting thing on the individual developer level, like to figure out, is this an environment where I can keep up to date? And how important is that? But then what's in the best interest of this organization that I'm working for right now? And that they also, as an organization, need to factor in the the benefits of letting their team explore new technology as a retention and recruitment thing. So it's a complex like dance that i think a lot of people don't know really know how to talk about and maybe in my position of running a running company i can talk about this with our clients and stuff but it's a thing that i see a lot of people struggle with and i don't know if you have any advice to people if they're like seeing that they're working on an existing application or existing code bases with some technology that have been maybe it's considered old cuz it's been out of you know it's been out for 10 15 years What advice would you offer those developers if they were kind of like, maybe this new technology would be really helpful for this upcoming project? Maybe some things that you'd encourage them to ask themselves before they make a proposal to their other stakeholders?
1: You make a great point that all of those factors are in play. I don't know if this is advice so much as this is is how I approach things and your mileage may vary. I have found that The engineers that I seek out and have loved working with, and they've by and large done really well in their careers, are the engineers who focus on fundamental principles and really understanding problem solving in whatever setting they're in. And that includes understanding how to make trade-offs. That includes understanding how to take a thorny problem and break it down and get to the bottom of it without going down rabbit holes that don't need to be gone down. All of those things are completely technology agnostic. So it is true that there is a pressure in the industry to have the latest technology on your resume. So I don't want to discount that or, or underestimate that that is a real thing. But also, if you look at what's happening lately, who knew that C and C++ would make such a resurgence and suddenly be really marketable skills again? So my tendency is always to go back to basics and fundamentals. And if you're really good at learning and solving problems, that is always going to trump having the latest buzzword on your resume and is going to have a lot more longevity.
0: When do you believe it's appropriate for a team to advocate for a full rewrite?
1: Man, that's a tough one. I've been involved in more than one rewrite. I think that if a team can honestly look at the system that they've got in front of them and say that it is it is not providing real value at least compared to the trade-offs of keeping the the system running and they have a viable path to providing whatever essentials the system might have been providing in something that they can get up to speed very quickly again Taking on deliberate technical debt of saying, all right, let's get something up and running that maybe isn't, isn't the best out of the gate, but that will, will be much more extensible in the long run. Then doing a full rewrite might make sense, but usually if someone wants to rewrite a system, I'm always going to start with saying, well, can you break off one piece of functionality, build it separately, and do that slow migration? Trying to do a full rewrite. By the time you get it rewritten, everything's going to have changed and you'll probably be in the same soup you started in, but with two systems instead of one.
0: Right. I always like to ask that question because I, I don't think there's like a great answer to that. Most people have tend to have a pretty... I wouldn't say a negative reaction to it, but I feel like earlier in people's career, you're like proposing rewrites because you haven't yet had that pain yet. So I'm just continuing to preach that I I think rewrites should be like one of the very last options you consider. Do you believe there are limitations in today's tech landscape with agile methodologies?
1: Yes. Again, this actually comes out of conversations with Ward, who was there at the beginning of agile and who sees its limitations. He talks in particular about Agile having arisen as a response to the challenges that individual teams were facing with their stakeholders. The way that the industry operates today, you don't have a team with a stakeholder doing a thing. You have a complex system of many teams interacting on multiple levels, Agile has, I think, struggled to address the challenges of that larger ecosystem.
0: In terms of having several teams working kind of in parallel on different pieces and them all trying to run in an Agile fashion?
1: Yeah. And there's a academic researcher named David Woods that we've worked with through the Snafu Catchers Consortium. He's written a a paper on what he calls graceful extensibility about how you adapt in a changing environment. This has been one of the things that has kind of highlighted some of the gaps in Agile is Agile helps one team respond to very clear inputs. And what modern engineering organizations need to do is to be able to constantly recalibrate and adapt to multiple inputs, both from people within the organization, from changes in the competitive landscape, from changes in the technology landscape, from political changes. I mean, this this entire very fast-changing world, all of these things put pressure on the teams that need to do work, and they themselves need to support each other in multiple ways, because you don't have one team anymore that can Build and own an entire thing. You have to have platform teams and development teams and front end and back end and all of these teams interacting effectively.
0: I'm curious about, I know that it sounds like some companies like New Relic, where it's very engineer focused and there's a lot of teams. It sounds like there might be a lot of people listening that are on smaller organizations or have much smaller engineering team. Do you have an opinion on whether or not the people that are working on features should also have? experience with with day-to-day operations maintenance and support?
1: I passionately believe that anyone who's working on developing new features should at least have some experience operationally because the work that you do to create a new product has to be informed by the realities of how that is going to run in the real world. Everybody is going to save everybody so much pain if there is at least some level of familiarity. And even if you're not doing the operations yourself, you have a good working relationship with the people who are because you can't build a car without knowing how to drive. Like you, you just, you shouldn't. (laughs)
0: Do you see, as you're bringing in, say, more junior, mid-level people into the organization, is there kind of a natural direction you tend to point developers in with, do you believe that junior developers should work kind of on the front lines for a while before they kind of get put in the future world or vice versa? Or is it kind of depends on the person? Or
1: That, I think, depends on the person and the organization. I think it's more about having an organization where you're not... Hiding the painful realities behind a curtain. So, for example, if you come into New Relic as an entry level engineer, whether you land on a product team that's very feature focused or you land on a team in site engineering that's very operationally focused or somewhere in the middle, you're still going to carry the pager. You're still going to be involved in incidents. You're still going to see those things unfolding. And, you know, you might not be like, doing maintenance on the network racks, but you're going to know that they exist and hopefully know that when those things break, it's going to impact you. And so that it's at least on your radar when you're sitting there writing a new feature.
0: All right. So let's imagine that there's a few software developers listening to this episode, hopefully. They've been at their company for a few years now, and they don't feel like their concerns about the long-term maintainability have been heard by, say, stakeholders, or maybe even their peers. Perhaps they've tried a few times to advocate for refactoring areas of the code base, improving the test suite, maybe upgrading the framework that they're using, but have heard, not right now, a few too many times, and feel like it's no longer worth asking about. What advice might you give them on how to start taking some corrective action there outside of looking for a new job?
1: (laughs) The first advice I have is stay persistent because if you're advocating for that, you're advocating for something deeply important to the health of your systems and your organization. So keep it up. In terms of, of how to make headway there, the advice that I would give would be to take a step back from the challenges for a little while. If you are really banging your head against the wall and you're not making progress, Give it a little bit of a break in terms of your active advocating and try to find an ally from another part of the organization, someone who has a perspective of the people that you're trying to reach, but where you're able to form a strong connection with that person in relationship. Instead of trying to make your case again, ask that person to explain their viewpoint, And to give you insight into what the people you're trying to reach are dealing with and thinking about and really invest in it like you're debugging a thorny bug, except the bug is this organizational challenge. I think that might give them a new perspective and a way of establishing common ground with the people that they're trying to reach that could shift the conversation from adversarial to collaborative.
0: I think that's some really great advice there. So with that, I have a few last quick questions. What non-programming related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry?
1: Oh, let's see. There are many. The one I'm currently fixated on is Beyond Human Error. By Sidney Decker. That is a great one. And the other one that's in a similar vein is Sources of Power by Gary Klein. And both of them will change how you think about things going wrong and understanding incidents and accidents.
0: And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development and these types of topics online?
1: I am a very sporadic tweeter, so you can find me at Beth Adele Long on Twitter and you can also find links to talks and articles and the like at Bethadele.io.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Maintainable Beth. Appreciate having you on and sharing some details for how you are working on things over at New Relic and how you, how you see the world.
1: Thanks, Robbie. This was so much fun.